0: Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for what it shows to us of the wonder of your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your law. As we hear, as we read, as we ask, as we discuss this passage together. We pray that you would show us ourselves in the light of your law and in light of our union with Christ that you would show us yourself in the light of your grace and your mercy and we ask these things in Jesus name amen All right second samuel chapter 12 and the lord sent nathan to david he came to him and said to him there were two men in a certain city the one rich and the other poor And prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die, and Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. The Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it. Lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And He brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. Thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Yes, sir. Why did
1: he fast um, hoping that the child will will make it when he has already been told that the child
0: will die. A good question. I think the best answer for that would be for us to look at the book of Jonah. If you remember the book of Jonah, Jonah the prophet is sent to Nineveh. Of course, he doesn't want to go, but the Lord gets him there anyway via fish transport. When he comes to Nineveh. He preaches the most seeker-sensitive sermon ever, right? Yet 40 days in Nineveh, Nineveh shall be destroyed. One-point sermon. He's done. That's it. There's no offer of grace or mercy or any of that, right? But the whole city repents in sackcloth and ashes, and they mourn and they cry out to God, and God relents from destroying the city, right? Right? They responded with mourning, with fasting, with a display of repentance and a true crying out to God. And so God offered them mercy and grace and averted the destruction of the city, even though that had not actually been set before them as an option by the prophet. So we know from that and from other places that sometimes when all we hear from the mouth of the Lord is a pronouncement of doom there's often this implication or at least this possibility that if we turn in confession and repentance, he may yet hold out mercy. Now, the distinction between what we see in Jonah and here is that the mercy is pronounced and then the consequence is also pronounced. So it doesn't follow in the same order, right? He's told that he's forgiven. Nevertheless, the child will die. David holds out hope for the possibility that through his intercession, through his prayer, through his fasting, perhaps the Lord will respond with yet more mercy and spare the life of the child as well, right? But after the child dies, there's nothing to fast about, right? That's, that's been brought to a conclusion. A good question. Is
1: this, is this a unique example or is this an example of what we should do when we have a sick uh, friends, whatever is that? Is this is this an example
0: of how we should act? Nathan's part or David's part or? Oh, uh, David. David. Yeah, I think we should always meet suffering with prayer.
1: But I mean, you
0: know. Yeah. Here, the context is unique in that we know absolutely for certain because the Lord has spoken through His prophet. That this suffering is because of this sin. And that's an important thing to remember, right? One of the, we talk about major themes in this chapter. One is the connection between sin, sin's consequences, and suffering. We can't draw a straight two way arrow between sin and suffering, right? Um, That's part of what the book of Job is about, is they want, Job's friends, want to draw a straight two-ended arrow between sin and suffering, right? And they say, right, sometimes we draw a one-directional arrow. We can expect that if we sin, it will lead to suffering. And the problem is Job's friends try and read that backwards and say, look, you're suffering. It must be because you sinned. And there seems to to be a point where Job accepts their argument and finds fault with God because he can't draw a connection between a sin of his that would cause this suffering. And we know from, from John chapter nine, right? With the man born blind, for instance, that not all things in this world that we would identify as suffering are caused by specific sins of individuals or of parents or family members. But, We can say broadly, certainly, that all of our suffering comes from, springs forth from Adam's sin. And I think we can also say that much, not all, but much of our suffering or the suffering that we inflict on others is the result of our sin. And so that's something that this chapter brings out. We, we push that down and try and keep that from rising to the level of our, our conscious thoughts, I think. That, that there's a connection between suffering and sin. Or that there might be a personal connection between suffering and sin. And this, this chapter brings that to the fore. But well, I think certainly for good cause, we can intercede when we know our sin has caused this suffering and ask the Lord, especially for the sake of others, to remove that. But we can't, right? Often we can't draw straight lines between sin and suffering. So it's, it's a long-winded non-answer of your question. Before we get too far into the meat of the chapter, though, like to frame it in a way that we don't often stop to do what is the first sentence of the chapter
1: the lord sent nathan to david
0: the lord sent nathan to david think of the whole rest of the chapter in light of that sentence and think about what that sentence implies the previous chapter ended with the remark the thing that david had done displeased the lord What do we expect from that? What's going to happen, right? The Lord could strike David down where he stands. The Lord could let David go and let the consequences of David's own sin blossom and take over. The Lord could harden David's heart by removing his gracious restraints. But what does the Lord do? The Lord sent Nathan to David. So the confrontation, David's response, the consequences such as they are, it all flows from a gracious action where God takes initiative to confront David in his sin by the prophet. Everything flows from that gracious act of God. When we're the one who sinned, we don't usually think of it in those terms, right? If someone calls us out for what we have done, we are not appreciative, right? How often have you been confronted with sin and you have said, thank you for telling me that? How often have you found it necessary to confront someone else's sin and they rejoice at the conviction that they feel following from that conversation. I've got two of my elders in the room. I can see that, right? Thinking through processes of church discipline and years of conversations that may have been had, right? That is not how people respond. But this is, right? Conviction is gracious. Being confronted with our sin is a mercy. Being driven to Christ is a balm for us, is good for us. That doesn't mean it will be comfortable. That doesn't mean it won't involve heart surgery that will hurt, that will take a long time to heal from. That doesn't mean that we won't be faced with a multitude of consequences of our sin in our own life and in the life of other people we love and don't want to hurt. And that's one of the things we see in this chapter, that that although David's sin is forgiven, consequences are not taken away. And its consequences, even in their brief outline here, are terrifying. We'll see them writ large over the next few chapters. And yet even so, This is a gracious action of the Lord to confront David's sin through his prophet. So, everything else we think about, sin and its consequences, its relationship to suffering, repentance, forgiveness. See all of that in all of its severity, in all of its seeming harshness, in all of the Evident unfairness to the other people involved and affected by David's sin. See all of that in a context of grace where the Lord refuses to leave David wallowing in his sin. What else do you see? Is there significance
1: in uh, verse 15? He refers to afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. I mean doesn't mention Royabeth or their child or I don't know, that just seems like be a strange wording.
0: It is a strange wording, right? And if you look actually at verse twenty-four, there is a change. Because at verse twenty-four, she's named. Her name, right? We talked about this last week. We know her name. We use it all the time in talking about these chapters, but the narrator avoids her name is mentioned by name when David first asks about her in chapter 11. And from then on, she's Uriah's wife or just her until after the child dies. And the consequences of David's sin as they affect that relationship, they are brought to a conclusion. And now she's Bathsheba, David's wife, whom he comforts and who conceives a royal son. It turns out to be Solomon. But yeah, there's there's a deliberate while he's still while the family is still underneath the consequence, the direct consequence of David's sin in that relationship. He's never called Bathsheba. He's consistently called Uriah's
1: wife. Well Uriah's already dead too. I mean but yeah. the Lord's still calling him her husband. So in God's eyes, they, they were, they, she was still Uriah's wife, it appears to me.
0: That yeah. appears to be the case. Yeah.
1: Regardless of what, what had, be, had happened, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a slight monkey wrench in the works with that, noticing how, how she's named what she's referred to as, and that's in the last verse of chapter 27. Right? When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. But I don't think that's the narrator agreeing that she's now David's wife, not Uriah's, so much as describing what has happened to her. Yeah, she's named at the very beginning by others, telling David who she is. And then she's named after the death of the child when David comforts her, which makes it all the more interesting that. In Matthew's genealogy for Jesus he refers to her as the wife of Uriah even though it's in connection with Solomon's birth so, as though Matthew is bringing to mind both of these chapters together in his in the way he chooses to mention her what do you think of David's parable or sorry Nathan's Nathan's parable
1: pretty damning
0: but also very clever yeah yeah Interpreters pull their hair out over the the disconnect, right? Because Nathan's describing these lambs and, right, you eat lambs. And that's, I mean, it would be really weird to talk about Uriah's wife as, as if it were his daughter. Like, why are there these weird disconnects between the parable that Nathan tells and the reality of what's described by the narrator in chapter 11? Well, because Nathan can't walk in to a king who's already murdered one guy and apparently gotten away with it and say, ha ha, you remember that time when you murdered that guy? God's not happy about that, right? He has to draw David in with this story that, right? And he's, he's not telling it as though once upon a time, he's telling it as though I have just come from the pub or from the bench or, right? And I've just heard this thing that has happened and you as king need to pronounce judgment here. So see how he draws David in. He sets this contrast. You can see the length of the description, right? Um, Always pay attention in narrative, not just to, Contrast in the description itself, but in the length of description. Think about Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1, which opens with this contrast between the blessed man and the wicked. And the description of the blessed man's is like three or four verses long. You look at it on the page and it looks like the tree that it compares the blessed man to. And then the description of the wicked is half a verse long. And it it looks on the page like the chaff that it describes the wicked as. Nathan does the same thing here. The only thing you need to know about the rich man until we get to what he does is that he had lots of stuff, right? Verse 2 is this long. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the description of the poor man and what he had in verse 3 is several sentences. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. And look how much time he spends describing that nothing that the poor man had, right? This little lamb that he brought up, that grew up with him and with his children, that used to eat out of his hand and drink out of his cup and fall asleep in his lap in the recliner, like a daughter to them. See the length of that description. And then here comes this traveler. And there's this interesting wordplay that's used when it says in verse four that, that he was unwilling to or refrained from taking one of his own flock. That's the same word that's used by David in saying that the man had no compassion. It's as though he had compassion on his flock not to take, but had no compassion on the poor man. And his animal. Notice also the the prominence of the verb take in this chapter. We see it several times. Um, We see it in verse four. He was unwilling to take from his own, but he took from the poor man's. And then, as Nathan describes David's actions, he'll talk about him taking, how David took. It's used several times throughout the chapter, and David is always, David or the character in the parable who represents David, always the subject of the verb take. Just like in chapter 11, when talking about Uriah's wife, the narrator used the word take to describe David's actions. Why is that significant? If we think about First and Second Samuel as a whole, where else does the verb take? have such an important role in Samuel's description of the, of a King. Yeah. in first Samuel eight, right. When the, the people say they want a King and Samuel's like, no, you know, they're like, yes, we do. And Samuel's like, okay, but this is what he's going to be like, right? The, the most important verb in that description, this is first Samuel eight beginning at verse 11 These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take, right? He'll take your sons and appoint them. He'll appoint others. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive orchards. Verse 15, he will take the 10th of your grain. Verse 16, he will take your male servants and female servants. Verse 17, he will take the 10th of your flocks. And in that day you will cry out because of your king and you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. No, we still want one. So the verb that formed the core of Samuel's warning about what the king will be like, that we saw begin to characterize Saul, is now used to characterize David's actions by the narrator in chapter 11 and by the Lord through his prophet Nathan to confront David here in chapter 12. I'll write that down. Take, that was 1 Samuel 8, really the whole second half of the chapter. Okay, what else do you notice? You notice something interesting about the contrast, not just in the length of the description, but in the description of the relationship between the rich man and his animals and the poor man and his little ewe lamp. I wonder if there's at least like a sidelong glance at the reality that for someone in David's position who has so many wives and concubines, probably a lot of those relationships are mostly politics, right? Kings did not get married because of romance. And in David and Michael, that's, that's soured, as the narrator has made clear. Most of his other wives are daughters of neighboring kings or they have important connections among the tribes in Judah's territory in particular. And so I wonder if that is also an element of the parable. You had all of these flocks and herds, you have all of these wives But what are they to you? And then you took what was most dear, what was most precious, what was his only beloved from Uriah. It's not told
1: to be interesting if they had any children. That's true. I think it's not told, but they could
0: have. Yeah, that detail is just not addressed at all. I don't think I have ever thought to ask that. Whether Bathsheba had other children already? It's
1: was going to ask that too. Didn't
0: yeah. they have children? Yeah. We don't know, because it's entirely unaddressed. Nathan gets him, doesn't he? Look at verse five. Whether we call it a ruse or good strategy or right, Nathan's parable, his story, has its effect because he gets. David invested. He gets David enraged at the rich man. He gets David to pronounce judgment on this character before he realizes it's him. That's the whole thing that Nathan has to accomplish, right? He has to be able to get David to pass judgment on David's sin without David realizing it's David's sin that David is pronouncing judgment upon. There's another thing we don't know, right? Is, is this, does the Lord give this parable to Nathan to say to David, or is this something that Nathan has to come up with in the moment? Not that that wouldn't be the Lord giving it to him, but I imagine it would feel quite different in Nathan's position if the Lord said to me, go tell David this versus walking into David's presence. Not sure what I'm going to say.
1: course, it says that the Lord sent Nathan, I've always read that to mean that this parable to mean that God gave him the parable also. I mean, that's an assumption on my part, of course. But...
0: Still, imagine being in Nathan's position. Either way,
1: yeah. whether the
0: Lord's yeah. giving you the specific words or not, right? I mean, David's already killed and covered up and gotten away with it. I mean, not that he's covered up very effectively, but nobody's saying anything to. Him. And if it's been long enough for the child to be born, David has good reason to think that he's gotten away with it. Did
1: Nathan have a
0: relationship with David before? I suspect so. How else would he be able to come into his presence? But I do believe this is the first mention of Nathan. I can double check that right quick. While I'm pulling that up. What else do you all see? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Nathan comes to David. Nathan's the one who comes to David in 2 Samuel 7. But we have met him before. Uh, But we didn't meet him before 2 Samuel 7. So he is the one who to whom David shares this idea of building a house for the Lord. And he says, great, let's do it. And then he walks out and the Lord says, no, go tell him no. And he comes back and says, no, you're not going to build the Lord a house. The Lord's going to build you a house. That, that was Nathan. So yes, Nathan already has this relationship with David. Uh, and I mean, the last time they spoke, it was good news, right? So David has no reason uh, except that, Nathan's a prophet to suspect that Nathan is coming uh, with bad news or confrontation. The phrase that David uses, right? There's this interesting tension between what David says in verse five and says in verse six, as he's pronouncing judgment on the guy in Nathan's parable. Cause on the one hand he says, right? The man who has done this deserves to die. But then in the next clause, right, he says he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no pity. Well, restoring the lamb fourfold is, is the consequence uh, or the judgment pronounced if someone steals an ox or a sheep in Exodus. So that's just what the law requires. But David's clearly angrier than just, well, okay, here's what the law says. Write him his ticket, right? So he says he deserves to die. So there's some discussion in the literature because the, the precise wording of the idiom is he is a son of death. Well, does that really mean that he deserved to die or does it mean that he's just a low down dirty dog? Um, and I think both the depth of David's anger and um, Perhaps Nathan's response to David's confession, right? You shall not die. And the only two other times that phrase is used, all actually point toward, no, it probably does mean deserve to die. So it's what Saul uses of David when he's convinced that David is conspiring against him uh, and is seeking David's life. And it's used also, uh, by David to Saul's guard when he's able to take the spear and the water jug from the camp, and is calling out to him in First Samuel twenty-six that you deserve to die because you couldn't keep your lord safe. We see Nathan pronouncing judgment as he describes at some length David's actions and characterizes them and. And talks about what God will do because of it. Uh, and we'll, we'll take a longer look at that. But, but what is David's immediate response?
1: I've sinned against the Lord. Yeah. It's
0: simple. It's direct. It's immediate. This is something that we've talked about as we've, as we've gone along. About Saul's sins... When these things happen, and his dynasty is rejected, and then Saul himself is rejected. David sins too, and in fact, some of David's sins seem to be worse. And we hypothesized that the reason David's lying continues is because he repents. Anytime he's confronted with his sin, he repents. Here's where we see that. If we contrast this with times that Saul was rejected, or if we go back and look At 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 15, we'll see Saul may eventually reach a point where he uses language that suggests that he acknowledges his sin, like that long string of qualifications, right? But his first move is to point fingers at other people, right? He points at the people. He points at Samuel for delaying at all these other things. He denies and says, no, no, that's not what happened. Uh, he tries to pass off disobedience as obedience, right? We spared this cattle as an offering to the Lord. Right? But David's response is simple, is direct, and it's immediate. I have sinned against the Lord. And that I think is the fundamental difference. Even as Nathan comes. We don't know. We're not reading this for the first time, so we do know. But if we were reading this for the first time, we don't know what David's response will be. We know what Saul's response was. We know David is coming to look more and more like Saul. And so we're biting our nails throughout this confrontation until David simply, directly acknowledges his sin. I think we're inclined to see David's word here. I have sinned against the Lord. And if if we're not thinking about all of that context, what we see is, okay, David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. His sin is going to affect this child. Who knows how many members of the court are involved and how much the wider nation knows. And David's like, I sinned against the Lord, as though he's forgetting all of these other people. His sin is affected and whom he has offended and acted against and sinned against. But that's not the direction or the tone of what David is saying, especially in, in light of how Nathan confronts him and talks about how God brought him to this place. David recognizes that at its core, David's sin is against the Lord. That's something else that I think we need to take away from this chapter. When we sin, we sin against people, absolutely. And as a father, I sin against my wife and against my children a lot. Probably not as much as I'm aware of, or sorry, more rather. Got that backwards. More than I'm aware of, and I'm sure they could tell stories on me if they were inclined to do so. But those sins of anger, of harshness, of being inconsiderate, right? And sins against other people, those are first and foremost sins against the Lord. The Lord who has extended his mercy to you. The Lord who has given you life. The Lord who has united you to Christ by his spirit. And yet we still sin. Forgiven, there's still consequences. Yeah. And so we have, we have forgiveness. We have, as David did, this this proactive move of the Lord to bring us to repentance, to draw confession out of us, so that we might hear and be assured of His pardon. And this is something that we intentionally rehearse every Sunday in the service where we read God's law. We take time for confession. And then we hear read aloud an assurance of pardon that reminds us of God's grace of God's forgiveness. But one thing we see as we keep mentioning in this chapter and those that follow is the, the forgiveness that we have in Christ, the assurance of pardon that he presses into our hearts does not always. And in fact, often does not remove the consequences of our sin. So we can, we can distinguish right between punishment and consequences punishment of our sin. If we are in Christ, that punishment is taken on by Christ and exhausted in we do not bear our punishment though we do have to deal with the consequences the outworkings of our actions yes sir
1: and uh nathan uh said that the lord um has also has put away your sin i read that to mean he has forgiven you your sin uh and he said and you shall not die if i remember correctly the the biblical law required someone committed adultery to be stoned to death. And I, I, I assume that's the reason why he's made that statement, that you, you shall not die. Yes, sir.
0: Well, And he's guilty of murder as well. Yeah. Adultery and murder. Yeah, right. That's yeah.
1: Yeah, right. So. It was a double sin, really. Was that the penalty for a man committing adultery back then? Too? Yes. Because I just didn't remember any guys getting stoned for it.
0: Yes. In fact, that's part of what's going on in, in John 7, 53 to 8, 10, 8, 11. In there, um, when Jesus says, let, he, let him who's without sin cast the first stone, they told him that they caught her in the act of adultery. The law requires if a couple is found in the act of adultery, that the community stoned them both, but they only brought her. So everyone involved, if things are as they say, the whole crowd has sinned, not just generally. Jesus is not making a comment about all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in this specific matter that they have brought before Jesus. They are either lying or they have all let him go, having caught him in the act every bit as much as they caught her. Could you
1: have been one-off him? Maybe. Maybe. Because that, we've discussed that in church before.
0: Yeah. And I know there's a, there's a long textual history about that passage in John, and we're getting in the weeds far away from 2 Samuel to talk about that, but... But in that section of John, Jesus is spending a lot of time talking about witness bearing and testimony and the fact that he is not the only witness to himself and who he is, but the father bears. The father testifies as well. Spirit testifies. And then in the midst of that, this question comes forward where, theoretically, there's more than one witness, but all of those witnesses are involved in the crime. So that when they hear what Jesus says and they all leave, they're left without, right? There have to be at least two witnesses to condemn someone on a capital charge. So even Jesus, having heard the charge, is only one person. And so she cannot be lawfully condemned. She has to be let go because there are not sufficient witnesses against her. Anyway, that's John 8. We're in 2 Samuel 12. <laughs> I like to talk about that because I've actually changed my mind over the years about whether that passage belongs in John or not. And that, that's one of the reasons is it's, it's deep thematic connections to the surrounding material. So... There's a curious thing that we learn for the first time that the narrator has very carefully avoided mentioning that comes out in Nathan's speech to David. He says to David, you are the man, which is is not, you know, despite the picture I shared on Facebook to encourage people to come to Bible study this evening, right? That's not encouragement. David, you're the man. It's the one you're condemning that I just told you about. That's you. Like, let me hold up a mirror All right, now say it again. right? You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And as he speaks and describes all of these things, one of the things that I think David hears is a reminder that David has arrived where he is because of God's grace, because of God's provision, because of God's love. In other words, he has received God's gifts. And that is what brought him to where he is. He did not get here by taking. If he was like the kings of the surrounding nations, I think what Nathan had to say to him probably would have done nothing except make him mad and get Nathan killed. But he hears a reminder of all that God has given. To bring him here. I anointed you king over Israel, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, and here's what we learned for the first time, and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. We know that it's standard protocol for a successor king to take his predecessors' wives into his harem, but has not been mentioned. Of David, that doesn't seem to have been something that David did, but maybe he did, or maybe at least he could have. It was in his power to do so. And can you imagine hearing that, the last sentence in verse 8, of all that God has given you, if that wasn't enough, God would give you more. And we might read that and think, wow, to be in a position like David. And then we remember Jesus says things like, Knock and the door will be open for you. Seek and you will find. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? That's how David's action is characterized. Taking all that God has done for him and just wadding it up and throwing it in the trash. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. Yes, you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, right? There's no washing his hands of Uriah's death. You remember the, the proverb that David included in his message to Joab at the end of chapter 11, right? Trying to cover over what happened and pretend like it wasn't what, what everybody knew it was, right? Right? said, thus you shall say to Joab, this is in 11, verse 25. Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. What does Nathan say to him here in chapter 12? Verse 11, thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Oh, sorry, verse 10 first. um, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Don't be sad, Job. After all, you're in the army. The sword devours now one, now another. That devouring sword will never depart from David's house. The Lord will raise up evil against David within his own household. And notice the language verse 11. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Does that sound familiar? That's the same language the Lord described in his rejection of Saul, that I've taken the kingdom from you and given it to your neighbor who is better than you. There's language that reminds us of that rejection of Saul, Right? And and David's repentance comes after this. And so even as we're hearing Nathan address David, there's a hint that should David reject this word of the Lord, David himself might be rejected too. We're, We're deliberately called back to that rejection of Saul. Well, take your wives, give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun and before the sun. Think of it in broad daylight, as we'll see a couple chapters down the road. But again, verse 13, right? David's response, direct, immediate, simple, and he's forgiven But the child will die. We've talked about David's fasting about his holding out for mercy. It's tempting to make a comment or observation how David doesn't pray for the dead. He knows once the child has passed, it's too late. But he intercedes as best he knows how until that death. But then life is allowed to continue. The kingdom is allowed to continue. So we, as we wrap up the chapter, we have Bathsheba comforted. We have the birth of a new son whose name could be interpreted either to mean peace or to mean wholeness in the sense of after this loss of a son, they're now made whole with the birth of another. The Lord sends Nathan again, not with judgment, but with a message that the Lord loves this child. And so the child is named Jedediah, whether that's a, family nickname, right? It's Solomon. It's the same one we know by the name Solomon, but he's also called Jedediah, which means beloved, which is a, or the Lord loves him, which is interesting because David's name means beloved. So there's also a play on the father's name in that. And then at the end of the chapter, speaking of moving on, we've seen how David in his house personally, and in his family, and in his household, David is able to move on. But the way the chapter ends shows how the, the nation is able to move forward as well. We began this war with the Ammonites at the beginning of chapter 10, and it's brought to its conclusion here. There's nothing nefarious going on here between Joab and David. Joab knows his place. As the general, he knows that it is at the point that the whole city is going to fall. Uh, the Royal city, the city of waters, this probably references to specific strategic parts of the city of Rabbah that he's conquered. So he knows that it's fall is imminent. So he says, Hey David, you need, you need to get down here right? because the city is about to fall and the king should get the glory for the success of the king's army, right? Joab does not represent to David what Saul was afraid David represented to Saul. And so he, he calls him down. And there, there's lots going on here with, with fun word plays and strange curiosities. It talks about... A very great amount of spoil, which is a play on the name of the city, Rabah, because Rab means much, very much, or a multitude. We get a multitude of spoil from the city named Multitude. And what do you think about that crown? Weighed a talent of gold. Yeah, a talent's roughly 75 pounds. So He's got a full-size sack of quickcrete sitting on top of his head which is probably why they say that it's, it's placed on his head, not left there, right? He doesn't wear it. So like, okay, smile for the picture. Now let's put that back. That's, that's too heavy. So to this end of chapter 12, it, it brings us to the conclusion of the Ammonite War. It wraps up this, this three-chapter section. But it also serves to show how the nation is able to move forward. But just like chapter 11 ended with that ominous phrase, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12 ends with things are resolved for the moment in the king's household. The nation is successful in war, but there's been this clear, sure proclamation by the Lord's prophet that an enemy will be raised up within David's household. And so we were waiting to see what that will look like. A lot to reflect on in this chapter to remind us of some of the things we've talked about, right? Some Sometimes we can draw a straight line between sin and suffering. Usually we can't, but one of the things this chapter reminds us of is a is of the consequences of our sin. My sin never affects just me. David's sin affects David. It affects David's wife. It affects David's child. It affects his wider household. It affects the nation as a whole. So even in this context of grace, of God's insistence on confronting that sin and displaying his mercy, we should still even so be left trembling at the horror and the corruption of sin that we tend to so easily dismiss or sweep under the rug. It Highlights all the more the depth of God's mercy.
1: Question, does Joab uh, take on any of the responsibility for um, Uriah's death? Other than, uh, I know at the at last chapter it talks about that, that he, he sought to it that what David asked, he did. Mm-hmm. So does he take, or should he take any responsibility?
0: Those are two different questions. So let's, let's address those separately. Does he take on any of the responsibility or the consequences, we might say? And should he? Um, Actually, I'll answer them together. I'll say, not directly. We see more of David's character than we see of Joab's. So there may be more to Joab than we ever get a glimpse of. But mainly what we see of Joab is that he is a skilled and efficient man of violence that that is his general character. I think that's a fair description of the whole of his career. And that does come down on his head during the reign of Solomon. But it doesn't come down on his head in a specific way. Uh, It relates to his murder of two different men and to his um, violent nature in general. His complicity in this murder doesn't come up in that connection except insofar as it forms part of his general character he
1: had um, before he avenged his brother arthur that's that's the idea
0: yeah he avenges his brother uh, and murders a man in cold blood and later we will see him or actually i think we've already seen it at this point he also murders a rival who, who had previously been an enemy all right, let's pray. Lord, we tremble as we read your word and are reminded of the profound ugliness of sin, the depth of its evil, the extent of its consequences as sin wreaks havoc in our world and in our lives. that we tremble as we consider our own sin, and its consequences and yet we rejoice at the reminder of your mercy mercy that you enacted when David was not looking for it as you confronted him with his sin called him to repentance and removed that sin from him even as you have done for us in Christ Lord we give you praise and glory that you have extended to us a forgiveness like that you extended to David. And you have done that in in giving us the knowledge of how it is done for us in Christ. Something David looked forward to, but was not able to understand in such depth as we are looking back on what was accomplished at the cross. Lord, we pray. That by your Holy Spirit, you would continually form us more and more into Christ's image. That you would empower us to put to death the deeds of the body. That we might walk according to the Spirit. Lord, grant us the grace of repentance. That we might run to you to confess. To hear again your word of pardon. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen you've been listening to the podcast of faith presbyterian church here in clinton louisiana check our website faithchurchclinton.org for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in we pray this recording has been a blessing to you go in peace